0: Boyarsky, the same expert who had responded so helpfully to Julia's facts, taut cords of juniper roots still sewed together the planks that had made up the hull, and I saw how they allowed the boat to flex instead of breaking under the assault of ripping tides. Lodias date from the 13th century, the cotch is even older, and the display caption claimed that its design had changed almost not at all between the 11th and the 19th centuries. Here were the large, cumbersome boats manned by Russian peasants that Jeanette Mirsky had sneered at. Quite evidently, they were superbly adapted to Arctic seas. While we browsed, a thin, fit-looking, trim-bearded man of about forty, natally dressed in a black suit and tie, was lecturing a tour group in Russian. When he was done, Masha introduced herself. It was the first in a series of encounters in the Russian North that, after all my months of frustration, began to yield real dividends for my quest. The tour guide was a local fellow named Sergei Terentiev, a self-taught historian of Pomori culture. Even better, he had been part of a team of avid sailors who, starting in the late 1980s, had thoroughly researched the Lodya and the Koch, built an authentic replica of each, and sailed them on a number of voyages duplicating those of the Pomori in the 18th century. In 1990, Sergei himself had sailed on the replicated Koch, named the Pomor, from Arkhangelsk all the way around Scandinavia and into the Gulf of Finland, disembarking at St. Petersburg. Other mariners the year before had sailed the Pomor from Arkhangelsk to Svalbard and back to Norway. The voyage out had taken seven days, A span that neatly corroborated Laraz's assertion of an eight-day journey from Russia to Svalbard. Everyone who had sailed aboard the Pomor was deeply impressed with her performance in rough seas and high winds, as were their comrades aboard the Grumont, as they had named the reborn Lodya. To comply with local regulations, each boat had occasionally accepted a tow in and out of a busy harbor, but otherwise her 20th-century sailors had handled her with no technology that was not available to their predecessors two and a half centuries before. When Tarentev learned why we had come to Arkhangelsk, he dropped everything to join us for lunch. Over Brini's and Shashlik, he poured out a flood of fascinating data. It turned out that at the very time the Pomori had set off for Svalbard at the beginning of the eighteenth century, their ancient way of seafaring was under serious threat. The time of Peter the Great, said Sergei, was a time of a great destructive force. Peter said to the Pomori, stop doing things the old way. Do them the way the Dutch do. Just a few days before in St. Petersburg, I had paused on a stroll along the banks of the Neva to admire a bronze statue. It was, I deciphered, a gift from the Dutch in 1996. It depicted Peter the Great as a simple craftsman, axe in hand, calipers and hammer at his side, in the act of building his own little dory somewhere in Holland. At the time he acceded to the throne, in 1682, Peter was only ten years old, For the next fourteen years, until the death of his half-brother, Ivan V, with whom Peter nominally shared the Tsardom, a fierce struggle between competing factions left both youthful rulers in danger of losing their lives in a coup d'etat. As a result, Peter grew up not in the palace in Moscow, but with his mother, in a village called Preobrazhenskoye, outside the capital. In a nearby colony of foreigners, Peter first fell under the spell of Western European ideas. The catalyst was a beat-up old English sailboat Peter found in a shed. In 1697, now in full power at the age of twenty-seven, Peter led a conclave of two hundred and fifty ambassadors to Holland, France, and Great Britain to absorb Western ideas. This so-called Grand Embassy ended forever Russia's immemorial isolation from the countries to its west. Peter himself went undercover as a lowly sergeant and spent four months as a carpenter in a shipyard of the Dutch East India Company. It was this apprenticeship that the statue on the Neva commemorated. The very founding of St. Petersburg in 1703, and the shifting of the capital there from Moscow, amounted to Peter's grandest gesture of embracing the West. Perched at the mouth of the Gulf of Finland, the new city lay only 200 miles from Helsinki. Russian history tends to view Peter's reforms as wholly for the good, Yet, as Sergei was now telling me, the Tsar's love of all things Dutch had proved, at least as far as the Pomori were concerned, nearly disastrous. Fortunately, with Peter's death in 1725, the sailors from Arkhangelsk and Mazen could go back to doing things the way they had since the 11th century. Using a detailed drawing the reconstructors had made, Sergei pointed out the features of the Koch. Six huge, thin-bladed, thick-handled oars supplemented the sails. They use these for going in and out of port, our expert commented, and when there is no wind. Sometimes two men on one oar. The oarlocks are made of seal leather, he pointed to the shallow hold. They have a small stove and living quarters underneath, storage in the middle. In the diagram, the sails looked so big they seemed to overwhelm the boat. In a strong wind, said Sergei, it takes three people to pull the sail up. Everything in the ship is made of wood. The ropes are of linen." The only bad thing, he went on, is that it is very hard to turn a cotch, two people to hold the rudder, ropes from both sides tied to the rudder to keep from wobbling, you leave some slack. I pictured the fourteen men in 1743, driven headlong to the northeast before the gale that had sprung up their ninth day out of Arkhangelsk, helpless to deflect the boat's runaway course toward the sea ice. It was a measure of how obscure the Maison men's survival story had become, even in northern Russia, that, although Sergei knew of it through oral tradition, he had never read or heard of Lora. We placed the Russian edition before him on the restaurant table. Fourteen men, he mused. I think they are in a koch, not a lodya. Apparently ignorant of such distinctions, Lora calls the boat simply a vessel or a ship. In the very first sentence of the main body of his narrative, after six prefatory pages, Lora writes that the Pomori's ship was destined for Spitsbergen to be employed in the whale or seal fishery. Reading the Russian version of this sentence, Sergei promptly spoke up. No, Russian whaling comes later. Fourteen men are too few to deal with a whale, too hard to pull it ashore, and a coach is too small for a whale, and they do not have to go to Spitsbergen for seal— They find seal in the White Sea. No, I think they were going to Spitsbergen to hunt walrus. The walrus tusks are small and very valuable. From the ivory, they make many things—furniture decorations, gun handles, knife handles, inlays, dishes, plates, little boxes, icons. The ivory from Mammoth is browner in color. Absorbed in skimming Lara's text, Sergei had not touched a bite of his food— They hunt walrus, he reaffirmed, and maybe fox. If they winter over, they kill reindeer for food. They hunt fox in the winter because the white, thick coat is more valuable. In summer the fur is not white. If they overwinter, they get just enough fox skins and walrus tusks to fit in their cotch. For most of a year, I had been beating half-imaginary bushes in hopes of scaring up a new primary source, ideally the long-lost manuscript and or notes of the elusive Klingstead, now for the first time, I had become the accidental beneficiary of a new research strategy, one that would prove fruitful in the upcoming weeks. Rather than plead on bended knee before the implacable bureaucracy of the Russian archives for a prowl through their holdings, I might gain more insight into the old story by simply asking a series of experts in different fields to go through Larra with a fine-tooth comb and show me what that combing yielded. Sergei read on, pausing to frown over Larra's description of the hut. "'I cannot believe the building was that high,' he remarked. "'In the Russian text, the unit of measurement was the sazhen, but it worked out, just like the corresponding phrase in the French and English texts, to eighteen feet. "'Perhaps this man Leroy did not understand Russian units,' Sergey ventured. "'Did he interview the sailors with an interpreter?' "'We don't know,' answered Hugh. "'It was the same puzzle that had first occurred to me months before.' As he read about Alexey Inkov's keeping of the Saints' days through more than six years, Sergey's eyes grew bright. Exactly, he said. For instance, my grandmother would never say, We planted potatoes on the 13th of June. She would say, We planted potatoes the third day after Pentecost. Sergey came to the passage in which the ship Nicholas and Andrew, in 1749, had returned to the site of the Mazeners' long exile, finding a wooden cross, which the mate Alexis Himkoff had erected before the door. Looking up, our new friend commented, A Pomor sees a storm, he prays to God. Please save me, and I'll build a cross to you. It's a promise cross. Finally, Sergei put Leroy aside, to deliver a soliloquy on the hardiness of the eighteenth-century northerners he so admired. He used the present tense. The Pomori, he averred, live on fish, meat, fur, berries— But Pomoria is so rich a region, they can do more than just survive. Potentially, they can be wealthy. In the rest of Russia, most people can barely get enough to feed their family. Here, a man can leave his